Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship. Opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Make sure that uh, God the Holy Spirit can maximize our time together and use what we study to uh, continue our spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together this evening, the freedom that we have in this nation. Father, as we see the things that are going on on the international stage and we recognize how quickly things can turn turn from order to chaos and how quickly stability can evaporate and how the events that occur over in Libya and Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, uh, can affect us in uh, ways we just can't expect. Father, we continue to pray that you would watch over this nation, give wisdom to our leaders. May they be w- willing to humble themselves and to seek wisdom from you and to have the objectivity uh, to understand it when they hear it. Father, we pray that you would continue to give um, guidance to those who are seeking to solve uh, many of the problems that we face as a nation, that we may solve our financial problems and that we may be uh, willing as a nation to do what is necessary to solve these problems uh, in order to go forward. Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word, that as we focus on these spiritual principles, that we might be reminded that life is not always what we perceive it to be, but it is. But history and our lives within that history are determined by your will and your plan. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. We started this last time. And I'll finish this tonight. I just took the time last time to take us through Habakkuk so that we could see that context. It was a good opportunity to give a one-shot overview of a uh, one of the so-called minor prophets in the Old Testament, one of the 12, as they're listed in the Hebrew Bible. And it's important for us to understand some of those some of those different books that are there in the Old Testament and how Scripture is used. Now, within the context of Romans 1.17, this verse comes as an explanation, that's the significance of the initial word for, uh, an explanation of the statement Paul makes just prior. Verse 16 is another important verse. Both of these verses are good verses to commit to memory. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, when we look at that particular verse, I want to point out a couple of things for you to remember. Uh, First of all, gospel here doesn't mean the specific object of faith in order to secure an eternal destiny in heaven. That's the narrow meaning of the word gospel, and the narrow meaning of the word saved is salvation from the penalty of sin so that we can spend eternity in heaven. Neither uh, one of these words has its narrow meaning. In fact, in, in Romans, that word group, sozo, which is the Greek verb to be saved, in fact, I was driving down 
in Pasadena a couple of weeks ago, and there was a Sozo Bible church, or a Sozo church, some kind of church, I don't know what it was, but they, that's what they call themselves, the Greek word for salvation. Or soter is the word for save, uh, salvation noun, soteria. That whole word group basically means just to deliverance. It has the idea of deliverance from physical uh, pain, suffering, sickness. It has the idea of uh, deliverance from a calamity of some sort. It has the idea then theologically of salvation from the eternal penalty of sin. So we often in American evangelicalism use the word saved to refer to what we sometimes what I sometimes refer to as phase one salvation or justification salvation, recognizing that sozo is used of three different stages or phases in the Christian life. The first phase is justification, the second phase is experiential sanctification, the third phase is glorification. And in the scriptures, the word salvation and saved refers to all of those as a sort of a, um, a plenary sense, as well as to each of them individually, so that sometimes uh, sozo refers to justification, sometimes as it does in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's phase one justification. Then you have passages uh, like uh, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is phase two. Then you have other uh, passages like uh, Romans chapter 5, I think it's verse 8. I want to make sure I get that verse right. Um, verse 9, much more than having now been justified, completed sense, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved, future tense. We shall be saved. So that means phase three, glorification. And then when we're here, and, and in a lot of places in Romans, sa- salvation has to do with that plenary sense. And the focus is a little heavy on phase two, the experiential uh, salvation or spiritual life, but ultimately it leads to uh, ultimate phase three, glorification. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, meaning the entire Christian body of doctrine, for that is the power of God to salvation, to bring us through phase one, phase two, to phase three, for everyone who believes. And there we have the Greek verb pistuo, and pistuo is the word to, the verb to believe, Pistis, with an I-S on the end, P-I-S-T-I-S, is the noun for faith or trust. And it is for everyone who believes. So it's used here in a uh, articular participial form. That is a participle that has a, a definite, uh, has a Greek article in front of it. It means it's used like a noun, basically. It has lost most of its verbal characteristics. So it's just talking about believers. That would be the best way to translate it, to every, every believer, uh, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So here we have the introduction of the concept of faith and trust and being a believer in verse 17. Then Paul is going to expand on that in the next sentence and then clinch it with an Old Testament quote. In verse 17, he writes, for in it, that is, in the gospel, the body of doctrine that makes up Christian belief, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And I think there's a lot of discussion on that. It's a somewhat ambiguous phrase, but it's the best explanation in terms of context is from faith, that is, the initial Faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, who died as the final and complete and total sacrifice for sin on the cross. That first faith with the object being Jesus Christ, that's faith, justification faith, to sanctification faith. That's the second one, the faith that is essential to grow as a believer. As it is written Now, Paul uses this phrase, as it is written, 
the just shall live by faith. So he's using this phrase from Habakkuk 2.4 to illustrate a point that he has just made. The point that he has just made is that everyone who believes will be saved. That's not talking about just eternal life. That's talking about what uh, I think we'll refer to as enhanced life, the fullness of life. Uh, Jesus says, I came not like a thief to steal and destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. It's not just talking about length of life, unending life, but it's talking about the quality and the largeness of life that is the believer's because he's no longer dead. We're, we're, everybody is, is a, basically a zombie, the walking dead, until you trust Christ as your Savior. And after you trust Christ as your, as your Savior, you are spiritually alive. You have life. There are some people who live in carnality, so they go back to being a zombie. They're the living dead, and they just live like an unbeliever. And those who pursue the spiritual life and grow, walk by faith, walk in the light, apply Scripture uh, to their lives, they experience the fullness of life, the joy, the peace that God has for uh, for us. So what Paul says here is the just shall live by faith. So he's connecting the faith of verse 16, the believers, to this idea of righteousness, which he introduced in verse 17, and uh, ties those words together. So we have to parse this, take it apart a little more to understand all of the implications, because this sets the stage for all of Romans. So I'm not going to teach all of Romans. But I want to lay this out enough to where, as we go through Romans, uh, we, we can understand it more fully. Now, the first thing that we needed to do in order to understand this was to go back to look, to examine the Old Testament context. And the Old Testament context comes out of Habakkuk. And just to remind you, Habakkuk has three chapters. There are two parts to Habakkuk. Chapters 1 and 2 relate a conversation, a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Chapter 3 is a hymn of praise to God because Habakkuk now sees how God's righteousness is being displayed by his temporal judgment on Judah in 586 B.C. As the prophet began at the first part of Habakkuk chapter 1, he's looking out at his fellow Israelites And he is appalled at the unrighteous behavior of the, of his fellow Israelites. So he complains to God in terms of his justice. Why haven't you brought judgment on these unrighteous Jews? And God says, come to think of it, I was just about to do that. I've got these people over here just to your east called the Chaldeans and they are on the verge of coming in and they are really going to bring judgment into Judah. And as soon as God says that, Habakkuk is taken aback, and he says, they're more unrighteous than we are. How can you use an unrighteous people to judge righteous Israel? And so if you hold your place there, I just want to make sure you understand this. And if you hold your place there in Romans 1, going back to uh, Habakkuk, In, I always have trouble finding Habakkuk, hides behind Jonah and Nahum. Um, verse 13. Habakkuk says to God, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Notice his emphasis again, a holy. We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You have pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours what? A person more righteous than he. Who's he talking about there? Israel. 
more righteous than than the Gentiles. So he brings in that idea of righteousness. Then when you get into chapter 2, and he draws the, makes this statement, Behold the proud, the proud are the Chaldeans. His soul is not, not upright in him. Where is the proud headed? Verse 5, he is headed to death because he enlarges his desire as hell and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. So the proud, the Chaldeans, they will be judged by God. But in contrast, the just, that is the righteous in Israel, the righteous remnant in Israel, shall live by his faith. And what he is talking about there is how the righteous in Israel will be sustained in the coming calamity by his faith. So it is comparable to what we would describe in relation to uh, the Christian life as phase two, our ongoing dependence upon God as a believer, trusting him in the midst of crises and in the midst of calamities, and we don't have any idea what the future holds in terms of crises or calamities. If you watch the news or you listen to certain conservative commentators, you may be on the verge of pushing the panic button and thinking Western civilization is about to implode, and if you don't take every measure conceivably known to man in order to protect yourselves, then uh, you will certainly be uh, up the proverbial creek. problem with that is if the apocalyptic prognostications are true, you can't put enough nuts away in your little backyard to survive that level of coming apocalyptic crisis. So we have to trust God, oh my. We always get pushed to that corner where we just have to trust God to take care of us, and he always will. He will provide for us and protect us through the crisis. He will deliver us from it so we don't have to go through it, or he will take us in the midst of us, and we're absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord. So the issue, though, for the believer is that he is to live by his faith. Now, that's the original context. Now, if you take that and you that meaning to the just shall live by faith, and you take that with you to Romans one seventeen, it doesn't fit because Paul is not making a literal one-to-one correspondence with the circumstance, the historical circumstance of Habakkuk to the circumstance of believers in the first century. So to understand it, we go back to our categories of how the Old Testament's used in the New. The first category we saw was literal prophecy, literal fulfillment. This isn't a prophecy and it's not talking about literal fulfillment in Romans 1.17. So we'll just dismiss that. The next one is a literal historical event like the exodus from Egypt uh, applied typologically to the, uh, to the New Testament. Now, uh, we see, we've seen some of that in our study in Acts 1. Uh, this was related and applied typologically to Jesus when uh, Joseph and Mary brought him back from Egypt, and um, uh, that's a type of a historical event. No prophecy was involved. And then we have the third usage, which is literal historical event, uh, as indicated by uh, Jeremiah's statement in Jeremiah 31:15, that's quoted by uh, Matthew and Matthew 2:17 and 18. This is literal historical event, and it is applied. There's something analogous between the original historical event and the present event, so that under divine inspiration, what uh, Dr. Robert Thomas out at um, Master Seminary calls uh, inspired census plenure. I've used that term before. I don't think I explained it. Inspired means God the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture so that they can then take Old Testament passages and apply them in ways that are different from the original meaning and the original context. So they're taking a fuller sense of the passage. And if you look at the phrase, the just shall live by faith, you can see that that has a measure of ambiguity to it. 
When we look at it in its original context, it's clear what Habakkuk is talking about. When you take it and you put it in the context of Romans or Galatians, it looks like a statement that is tailor-made to explain the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's not what Habakkuk was talking about. But those words can mean that. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is able to take a statement from the Old Testament and apply it and enlarge its meaning. That's what census plenior means, a fuller meaning of the text. Um, so it's an application by analogy. Now, when we look at this example, as we studied it before, Ramah, it, there, there's only one point of contact, one point of similarity between Matthew 2.18 and Jeremiah 31.15. Jeremiah 31.15 is talking about an event that occurred in Ramah, which was north of Jerusalem. Matthew 2 is talking about an event that occurred in Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem. Uh, Matthew is talking, I mean, Jeremiah is talking about uh, children who were being taken away to captivity. They did not die. Uh, Matthew is talking about children, infants who were slaughtered and who did die. The only thing they have in common is the maternal grief that is expressed through the weeping of the mothers, and that was the point. So there is an, an, uh, an application by analogy. The fourth category we looked at was summary, which just takes a phrase that sort of summarizes an Old Testament uh, teaching. So that is a brief review of that particular doctrine. And so we see that what Paul is doing in Romans 1.17 and the other passages, the other two passages where he quotes Habakkuk is to apply a principle from a fuller sense of the original uh, phrase. Another thing we see is that the Hebrew word order, the Septuagint word order, and the uh, Romans Koine Greek word order are somewhat different. The Hebrew word order states the righteous by his faith, and you also have to do some work on whether it's the just or the righteous, but I'll uh, touch on that in a minute. It's the righteous. Uh, the righteous by his faith shall live. Now, you can imply the same, same thing. So whether it's righteous by faith shall live, the emphasis on, is on the basis of righteousness. And if you say the righteous shall live by his faith, then the emphasis is on living by, by faith. The Septuagint word order, that is the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament Hebrew text, uh, keeps the same word order as the original Hebrew, the righteous ha dikaios, by his faith, ek pisteos, from faith, uh, from my faith, it's literally in the Septuagint, shall live. And then Romans keeps that same word order as well, but, trans, but moves the by faith to a position following the verb, so it's translated into English, in every English translation, as the just shall live by faith. So we have to address this as to whether that is a legitimate translation. Now to do that, we have to back up just a touch and look at this concept of uh, righteousness. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In Romans, the word dikaiosune is used 34 times. Dikaiosune is used 34 times. Uh, it is, let me, it is spelled D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. And it's that suffix, the sune, indicates a quality of something. So it's the quality of righteousness. It's used 34 times in Romans. The phrase, the righteousness of God, is used eight times in the New Testament, seven of which are in Romans. I think it might be important in Romans. That phrase, the righteousness of God, literally scared the hell out of Martin Luther before he was saved because he pictured the righteousness of God in terms of this judge up in the heavens casting thunderbolts of judgment at mankind, 
And it wasn't until he began to study through the Psalms that he realized that the righteousness of God wasn't a focus on God's righteousness as much as it was the provision of God's righteousness by his mercy to mankind. And that eventually led him to realize that it was through the imputation of God's righteousness to man by faith that was the basis for salvation. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament agree that man is not righteous. He can perform good deeds. He can do many wonderful things in history and for his fellow man, for his family. Jesus said to the disciples one time, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Just because we say as Christians that man is totally depraved, we don't mean he is absolutely depraved. There are people who live in the sub-Sahara and who fight for um, Gaddafi who are totally evil. But human beings are not absolutely evil. We are The doctrine of total depravity means that every part of man's being has been affected, corrupted by sin. And therefore, man is inherently evil in his orientation, and evil is always defined in Scripture as oriented away from God's authority, oriented towards idolatry, which is what we see in Romans chapter 1. Evil is not defined in Scripture in terms of specific acts such as incest or child abuse or sexual assault or genocide or slavery or any of these other things that are uh, sins that uh, occupy the minds of contemporary people. Uh, it is... Um, it's the idea, evil is the idea of the rejection of God as the creator God of the universe. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds, not our unrighteousness, but our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So even though man does good things, it's relative to other people. We can do wonderful things. We can do many things that improve the lot of, of mankind, but we can't measure up to the absolute standard of God's character, and that is the definition of righteousness. Righteousness is the gold standard of God's perfection. It is the standard of God's perfection, whereas justice which is another word that comes out of righteousness. The same words in both Hebrew and Greek that are translated righteous are also translated justice. It depends on whether the context is talking about the objective standard or the application of the standard. So when the emphasis is on the standard of God's perfection, of God's uh, righteousness, then it should be tra- the word should be translated Righteousness, and that is the standard by which God relates to mankind. And that is what is rejected by man because he does not want to live up to the absolute standard, and he cannot live up to the absolute standard, the absolute standard of God. So when we read in Romans 117, in it, that is in the gospel, this absolute standard of God is revealed. Because in the gospel, we understand that man doesn't measure up to the standard. Man is a sinner. Romans uh, 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That, that's the conclusion of the first three chapters in Romans. Uh, this is the same thing Isaiah was saying when he said all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Again and again and again, you have this uh, statement in Scripture that what man does is falls short of God's uh, standard. So the gospel reveals God's righteous standard, but also reveals the solution to measure up to that standard, which is faith in Christ, at which time God's character, God's righteous, righteousness is uh, imputed or applied to man. This is what is referred to by the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, another thing that we run into here 
is that the Hebrew word that is translated faith in Habakkuk 2.4 is the word imuna, where we get our, the root is the same root that where we get our word amen. And the verb is aman, meaning to believe. Amuna is translated faithfulness or steadfastness or stability every place else in the, New, in the Old Testament except for here. In this passage, except for perhaps the last 20 or 30 years, it has always been translated faith. It's the only place that, where you will find Amuna translated faith. So the interpretive question is, does Amuna mean faithfulness or does it mean faith? Now, if you take, take it that here it must mean faithfulness, then you end up saying that it is your, the faithfulness of man that is the basis for justification. Um, in Habakkuk, it is clear that he's not talking about um, faithfulness because the contrast to the just is the proud. And so what we're talking about is two groups of people who have already settled what they are. They're closed groups. Whereas if you define the second group as being faithful, faithful is a linear process. You have to see if you've been faithful enough and for a long enough period of time. It's a process. It's open-ended. And what we're talking about in the way the, uh, it's expressed in, in uh, Habakkuk 2.4 is those who are of this category shall by faith live. They are viewed as a set category. It's not a process. We're not trying to find out if they're going to be faithful. They are already defined as this set category. This is why uh, historically Habakkuk 2.4 has been understood as, as faith rather than faithfulness. The theological implications of faithfulness also will change. Now, some people will say, well, this is reading New Testament passages back into the Old because when Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4, he always deals with it in terms of faith, not in terms of faithfulness, which is a different Greek word, pistos, with an O-S ending, rather than pistis, with an I-S ending. One is faith, pistos is faithfulness. So Paul always quotes this with, with pistis, which is how it's translated, as, we'll, as we see here in uh, the Septuagint translation, sorry I didn't tr- uh, transliterate that, but this is pisteos, which is a genitive of pistis. It's not pist- pistos, it's not faithfulness. So even the rabbis who translated the Masoretic text into the Septuagint before Christ understood this to be faith and not faithfulness based on the context. And this fits what we see in Probably, in my opinion, the one, one of two verses that's the classic in the New Testament for understanding justification, and that's Galatians 2.16, begins with a causal participle that should be translated, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. There is no ritual, there is no uh, morality that can measure up to the absolute perfection of God's standard of righteousness. Uh, man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, a comment here. We'll get into the details of this when I get into Romans 3. But if you have the NET Bible, uh, which some people have, uh, which I don't particularly care for, it is a, it's good in some ways for the trained Greek student it points out where problems are and what some of the solutions are. But the methodology that has been adopted by the New Testament Department of Dallas Seminary, which is basically who p- produced the notes in the NET Bible, which I don't particularly care for, uh, they take the position that, this, see, this is a genitive construction. It's not a dative faith in Christ. That'd be real easy. It's faith and then Jesus Christ is in the genitive construction, faith of Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, a genitive, you've got 26 six different nuances for a genitive case. And coming out of European theologians who are not exactly the most conservative when it comes to theology, 
uh, has developed this idea that this should be understood as what what is called a subjective genitive instead of an objective genitive. A subjective genitive means that the noun in the genitive, Jesus Christ, performs the action of the noun that has the verbal idea. Faith has a verbal idea, and so this would then be translated that we're not justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Christ. And this is just borders on heresy, if not crossing the line. And this is dom- has been accepted by uh, many scholars, because scholars have one flaw that flows from arrogance, and that is they always want to discover something new in the Bible. And so we all, every now and then we do have a flash of insight that is uh, significant, but it's rare and uh, always has to be evaluated. This is not, and we'll run into the same phrase in Romans 3 and Romans 4, and I'll deal with that in more detail when we get there. But it should be translated as it's always been understood as an objective genitive, faith toward the object, which is Jesus Christ. So a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Even we have believed in, G- in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. We are justified only by faith and only in Jesus Christ. So when we look at Romans 1.17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, to come to the question, to answer the question I raised earlier and as well as last week, is it the just by faith shall live or the just shall live by faith? And let me give you some reasons why this should be understood as the, ju- those, as the justified by faith shall live. Uh, first of all, if you look at the structure of Romans and how the words righteousness and faith are used, uh, righteousness and faith are always connected together. Faith is not connected to life. So it's not living by faith. That's not the issue in Romans. Again and again and again you have righteousness by faith stated throughout the uh, epistle to the Romans. The noun pistis for faith and the verb pistuo to believe, or I believe literally, appear 27 times in Romans chapter 3 through 4. Now Romans 3 through 4 is the greatest exposition and explanation of justification by faith in all of Scripture. And in Paul's mind, he goes back to, in Romans chapter 4, he goes back to Genesis 15, 7, when Abraham, uh, when it is said of Abraham that Abraham trusted God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. That is the Old Testament foundation for understanding that the, that justification is by faith. That's what Habakkuk is alluding to in his statement. That's what Paul is alluding to in Romans 1, uh, 17 and develops when you get into Romans 3 and 4. So we have, statistically, we have the noun pistis and the verb pistuo 27 times in those two chapters. Romans 5, 1 uses those words again, and you don't hear them or read them again until you get down into uh, the latter part of Romans. He stops talking about faith in uh, Romans 5, 1, and 2. And there it's simply a transition from the topic of justification by faith alone in Romans uh, in Romans 4, to the topic of reconciliation and the peace we have with God in Romans chapter 5. On the other hand, the noun zoe for life and zao for to live, the verb, appear 25 times in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, which are the sections dealing with the spiritual life that comes after you're justified. And those words are not found in the section dealing with justification by faith. 
So when we look at these three words, uh, dikaios, or dikaiosune for justification, uh, pistis and pistuo for faith, zoe and zao for life, we see that in Romans, Paul always associates justification with faith, not life with faith. Therefore, on the basis of that uh, statistical analysis within the context of Romans, we see that Paul is emphasizing that what begins life is justification by faith, and those who are justified by faith, if they continue to the second faith of verse 17, will live. They will have the abundant life, the enhanced life, the joyous life that uh, Christ promised us. That's, those two verses set up the basic theme of the epistle to the Romans. Now, starting in verse 18, we're going to shift into the first major division of Romans. In verse 18, one uh, eighteen down through chapter 3, verse 20, the focus is on the condemnation of man from God's righteousness. God's righteousness is his absolute standard, and his justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. Because as his creatures that are moral and sentient and volitional and have responsibility, we fail to meet the standard of his righteousness, therefore his justice must condemn us. What God's righteousness rejects, God's justice condemns. What God's righteousness accepts, God's justice will bless. And so in Romans 1.18 through 3.20, we, we will see the condemnation of man, that revealing that no matter what man does, he just can't measure up to the righteousness of God. In Romans, uh, in, in the first part of this, we're going to talk about uh, God's condemnation about, upon uh, the human race as a whole, and that this condemnation is based on man's rejection of God. And so we'll begin this in verse 18. Verse 18 begins with this first word, for, again, third time in a row, uh, introduces an explanation. And it is explaining again, uh, coming out of the thesis statements of verses 16 and 17, why it is true that the justified by faith shall live. And so he says, he explains why, for or because, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, there's a couple of things we ought to note as we go through this just to make sure we understand what's going on. First of all, we have the phrase, the wrath of God. The wrath of God here is uh, and written in Greek without an article, which indicates it's talking about the quality of the nouns as opposed to their distinctiveness. And so this is talking about the absolute judgment of God. The phrase wrath speaks of anger. It speaks of, uh, in, in its literal meaning, However, the phrase wrath of God is not to be understood in terms of the literal, uh, liter- literal uh, meaning of the word, but it, is, it has an idiomatic sense that expresses the harshness of God's judgment of his judicial activity. There are those who go to phrases like the God's anger, God's wrath, and they want to say that this expresses God's emotion. Here's a couple of problems with that. First of all, the phrase wrath of God is not, in the Hebrew where it originates, is not a literal phrase. It doesn't even use the word, a word for wrath or anger. It uses an idiom. It uses a a physical idiom. Uh, It literally, it's, in Hebrew, it means God's nose burned. Ever see somebody gets really mad and their face gets all red and their nose gets all red? Well, that's, that's how the Jews expressed anger in Hebrew. They look at you and you get angry and say your nose is burning. So right away we see this is a figure of speech that is, when it's applied to God, it's what's called an anthropomorphism. 
An anthropomorphism means that something related to human form is applied to God, but God doesn't actually possess it. We have phrases like the eyes of God, the finger of God, the um, God turning his back on Moses. God does not have a human body like we have a human body. But these words are used in an analogous sense because they help communicate something about God's purpose or his plans uh, toward us so that we can understand him. So when we look at this phrase, the wrath of God, we must understand that it originates from an idiomatic anthropomorphism that is then applied as an anthropopathism. Now, anthropopathism is... Anthropos is a word for man. Pathos is a word for emotion. So we're talking about using a human emotion and ascribing that to God. And just like uh, anthropomorphism, God doesn't actually possess that form in, um, in terms of emotion. He doesn't possess that emotion either. E- anger is a response to a change of circumstances where we don't get our way. And it happens when suddenly we recognize we're not getting our way and we respond or react to the circumstances. Well, this is absurd to think of this about God because God in his omniscience knew from all eternity that man was going to rebel against him and man was going to reject him. God doesn't wait until somebody says, I don't believe in God, to throw a temper tantrum and to get mad at him. God has always known that they are going to reject him. And so he doesn't operate uh, in terms of emotions, visceral emotions that are always in a state of flux. So these phrases, wrath, the wrath of God, just express the severity of judgment. We have a similar expression in English language. We'll talk about um, going to court and if you are given a sentence that is the fullest extent of the law, you might say that the judge threw the book at you. Well, the judge was not angry. The judge may have been very impartial and very uh, objective and, in fact, very cold. But he didn't literally pick up the book and throw it at you. We may say that the full force and wrath of the court fell upon you. Again, we're not necessarily making a statement about the emotional status of the judge. In fact, we don't want a judge to be emotional. We don't want a judge to be angry. We want a judge to be dispassionate. We want a judge to be impartial in the application of the standards of the law uh, to us. And so the idea of the wrath of God is never an expression of God getting angry at man in a human sense, but is merely an idiom for, for stressing the severity and the harshness of God's judgment. Second thing to say about the phrase wrath of God is that this is a term that is never used to describe eternal condemnation. It is always a term that is used to describe God's temporal judgment on mankind. The way the wrath of God is revealed in the coming verses, uh, beginning in verses 24 down through 32 at the end of the Uh, at the end of the chapter, has to do with the historical manifestation of God's judgment in human history and civilizations up to the point of the time of Paul's writing. Later on, we will read in uh, 1 Thessalonians that God has saved us from the wrath to come. That's not talking about the lake of fire. That's talking about the tribulation, which is the outpouring of God's judgment on human civilization during the period of Daniel's 70th week. So the wrath of God is a term for the outpouring of God's judgment on human civilization in time. It is not a term for eternal judgment. We read, therefore, that the wrath of God is revealed, disclosed, from heaven, which is where the God's throne is located, the supreme court of heaven, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against two things, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the phrase of men applies to both ungodliness and unrighteousness. 
Now, what do these, uh, to what do these two terms uh, refer? The first word is asebeia. Asebeia, S-E-B-E-I-A, sebeia. That root has to do with something related to deity, something related to deity. When it has the prefix E-U, which means something good, like when we combine the Greek pre- uh, prefix E-U with logos, the word, and we have a good word, it's a eulogy. We say something good about a dead person, whether they deserve it or not. Um, that's the eulogy. So we have eusebeia, uh, which has to do with uh, something that is, is good in relationship to to God. So that is a word that is translated godliness usually, uh, which from the old English god likeness, which just means that we're to be conformed into the image of God. So God has given us everything related to life, bios, and eusebeia. This is the negation of that in Greek, and they don't have the, in English we have the prefix un, that means it's not something. In Greek they have a prefix that's just the letter a. Like at the beginning of millennialism, if you put amillennialism in there, then you negate it. You don't believe in a millennium. So asebeia is ungodliness or a lack of a spiritual life or a lack of a focus on the spiritual realities of life. It is a rejection of everything that God has established in terms of true spirituality. The second word that is used is adikeia. Excuse me, adikeia has to do with unrighteous. Again, you have that prefix of the alpha that's called the alpha privative plus decay. John, 1 John 5 says that all unrighteousness, adikeia, is sin. So we have a, something that has to do with negating God and something that has to do with uh, the violation of righteous standards. Now, it, it's interesting, this fits on the um, uh, the Ten Commandments, that Asabea relates to those initial commandments that relate to worshiping only one God. And Adikea has to do with violating all of the other standards, not honoring your parents, committing adultery, stealing, uh, being a false witness, all of those commandments come under that category. So by using these two words, Asabea and Adikea, uh, Paul is assuming all violation, that, that which relates to God and that which relates to man. Remember, Jesus summarized the law by saying that all the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the first half of the Ten Commandments, and love your neighbors yourself, the second half of the Ten Commandments. So this is the rejection of that. So the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is, re- from heaven, is revealed from heaven against all, Asabea, all that rejects the truth of God in terms of spiritual life and man's relationship to God and everything related to the violation of God's standards and relationship to other human beings. So we read the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, that which rejects God and all things related to God and the unrighteousness of men. And then we have a final phrase, and it is a um, a relative clause who suppress the truth by means of unrighteousness. This is a great phrase and one of the most significant phrases in, and verses in all of Scripture. Now, the relative clause, who suppressed, describe the, the men. Those who are the receivers are those who are ungodly and unrighteous. Those men are, those who are ungodly and unrighteous are men who are suppressing truth um, by means of unrighteousness. Now, the verb there, katakeo, means uh, to hold something down, to push something down, to stuff something down and out of the way so you don't see it. Like when you're 
uh, trying to deal with something and straighten up your closet and you just have some things you don't ever know where to put them, so you stuff them back in a corner somewhere and hope you never have to figure out where to put them because you just don't have a place for them. And that's what God is. People just don't want to have a place for God, so they're trying to figure out some place in their soul to stuff him in some dark corner somewhere so they don't ever have to deal with him. But the funny thing is, is that God just isn't going to go away and leave them alone. His reality is in their soul. And every now and then, when somebody says X, Y, and Z is wrong, they just get really upset. And we see this every now and then in our culture when uh, somebody's just going along just fine and, and they make some statement uh, in relation to something that is, that is wrong, and all of a sudden some, somebody just goes ballistic over it because uh, they've been trying to keep God in a box somewhere and not come out. And those Christians want to talk about creation. Recent survey came out and said, surprised people, said that there's um, about 30 or 40 percent of high school science teachers are not teaching Darwinism. They're teaching creation because they don't believe in Darwinism. And this just drives the atheists and the evolutionists nuts because they're working so hard to create a scientific uh, explanation for the origin of life that leaves God out, and it just doesn't work. It is pseudoscience. Science is used to be defined this way. They're changing definitions so they can get away with their little leisure domain. Um, Science used to be uh, observing repeatable, based on observing repeatable events. Well, one, nobody's ever observed evolution. It's not repeatable. It's not observable in the laboratory. And so it violates every canon, every rule of science. You cannot prove it or demonstrate it. It is a pure act of faith. And even the Supreme Court, in a ruling back in 1973, recognized that secular atheistic humanism based on evolution was as much an, a, a religious belief as Christianity or Islam or Judaism or anything else. To say there is no God is just as much a religious statement as to say there is a God. And so you can't escape it. Everything we do in life is ultimately religious. We're ultimately coming out of some belief in whether there is a God or whether there isn't a God or what that God looks like. You can't just find a point of neutrality. Uh, so man is tr constantly trying to suppress truth by means of that which violates God's standard by unrighteousness. So he comes up with all manner of ways that violate God's law, the Torah, to suppress the existence of God. And then Paul is going to say, well, you answer the question, well, wait a minute, how do they even know that God exists? How does people in Timbuktu or in Zimbabwe or Uganda or uh, Papua New Guinea, how do they know that God exists? And then Paul is going to explain that in the next two verses, that what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. And the conclusion of verse 20 is, so they're without excuse. God says they've got enough information by looking at creation. Everything I created has my fingerprint on it. And every time they look at a tree, every time they look at a leaf, every time they look at a snowflake, every time they look at a, at, at a, at a flower, it is screaming to them, this can't happen by chance. That's irrational. This has God's fingerprint on it. And every time they see that, they know it. It resonates with something God put in their soul. As, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every human being. And it resonates with them, and they hate it. They just vibrate over it because they want to live life their way and do what, do what they want to do. And as soon as they're reminded that there just might be an absolute accountability to God, they just go ballistic. And God says, you've got enough information so that you are without excuse. You can't say, nobody ever told me, nobody ever showed me. God says, I show you in the heavens and the stars. David said in the Old Testament, the Psalms, says, heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament that is the atmosphere shows his handiwork. You can't escape it. 
The message is there. God made it clear so that they're without excuse. We'll come back next time and get into those uh, two verses. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that the knowledge of you is everywhere. No one escapes it. And those who claim that they are atheists or agnostic have just mastered the art of truth suppression. And they are um, keeping you out of their minds, but yet they never can escape you. And so, Father, we pray that as we study these things, we may come to better understanding of the nature of every human being, including our own nature, in terms of the impact and the effects of sin. And yet your grace has overcome that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.